Good morning. Memorial Day weekend and an opportunity, three-day weekend, to pause and think about the freedoms that we have and not to take those for granted. And there is a form of freedom that, of course, is found at the cross of Jesus Christ, which is eternal and everlasting. I'd love for you to take your Bible, and we're making our way today in a little two-part series, pause, if you will, from the larger series in the book of the Psalms, making our way, you see now, to Ezekiel in chapter 39. And if you're tuning in online, what you want to do is to be able to connect this with what we have covered last week in our series, where we are looking at a future invasion of the land of Israel and how it relates to modern day life. And so this is known as the Battle of Gog and Magog. There is a future battle subsequent to that, and it is known as the Battle of Armageddon. And Armageddon ends what the Battle of Gog and Magog begins, you see. They're meant to be connected to one another, separated only by time. Now, as we're looking at this, and we are again reminding ourselves of what we covered in our last time together, we are dealing with an individual who is known as Gog. That's his title, not necessarily his name. So Gog carries with the idea of a czar or a Caesar, emperor, and the likes. And he's leading a coalition of roughly seven nations that are going to make their way southward and attempt to take over the land of Israel. We're going to be exploring that and trying to understand that. Gog is a leader of a grouping of Magog, Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, which would involve Russia and the, some of the former uh, Soviet republics. And as we noted last week, furthermore, when we got to verse 5 of the 38th chapter, we saw that Persia was the first of those that joined the coalition, and Persia would be modern-day Iran. And Iran, of course, and those that are true Russians come from the same ethnic stock. So we tried to pull that all together to give us a better understanding of what we're looking at. This morning, what I'd love to do is to read from verse 1 down to verse 8 of the 39th chapter to give us a sense of where all this is taking us. And here now, you and I are told by Ezekiel, And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north. That's a key phrase. And lead you against the mountains of Israel. And then I will strike your bow from your left hand Make your arrows drop out of your right hand, and you shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes, and the peoples who are with you. And I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort, and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. 
You shall fall in the open air, field rather, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, for they, they shall know that I am the Lord. And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel. And I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is coming. It will be brought about, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. So we're going to continue on with where we left off last week. And if you weren't here last week, you want to check it out online and get a sense of how all of this fits together, where past, present, and future converge here. And this story is extraordinary in the way it can relate to current events of today. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. So now, our Father, what we want to do is to open up our hearts to you. We open up your word before us. We want, Father, to be able to understand what it is that's timeless and apply it in a way that's timely. We want to understand how the past guides the future. And we're looking at an invasion of Israel and all the prior invasions were but installments, perhaps some minor, all of which lead towards future installments like Gog and Magog, leading to a final installment, Armageddon, all of which involves connecting the dots and understanding how you are working over the course of time to achieve your purposes. Now, Father, we, as we normally do on Memorial Day weekends, we pause to consider battles in Scripture that have been described, fought, seeking where you're at in the midst of the battle. But at very personal levels, Father, there are people here in the prior service as well, those online, and they're fighting their own battles. And you're sovereign, you're supreme, your Lord over all. So, Father, now as we take your word, we're asking that you will speak to us in a very profound way. Warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. He's a... Uh, man who has written extensively on what Jews have gone through through the, through the years. His name was Shalom Alakim. And he was a man who had lived in the Ukraine. And he described what it was like to be a Jew in the Ukraine until what were known as the pogroms were such that they had to flee in his family to the United States of America. And he wrote a number of books that give us greater insight into the experience that Jews had in the Ukraine and in Russia, settings that are described as the shtels, 
Well, one of his got turned into a musical Fiddler on the Roof. And there's an extraordinary degree of insight in the various ways in which God has referenced God's plan, God's purpose in it all. What is fascinating is that he has this man by the name of Tevi, who's a dairyman, a Jewish dairyman, living in Russia. And a constable, a Russian constable, comes to him and says, oh, you're an honest, decent man, even though you are a Jew. And Tevi responds, oh, thank you so much, Your Honor. How often does a man get a compliment like that? He says, with a smile on his face. At another point in time, Tevi looks up into the skies. And sometimes, sometimes I wonder, when it gets too quiet up there, if you're thinking, what kind of mischief can I play on my friend Tevi today? And then, of course, that classic. I know, I know, we're your chosen people. But once in a while, can't you choose someone else? And then one that has extraordinary bearing upon what we're considering this morning. With Tevi is minding the land that uh, he's working, and the constable approaches him, representing the military of Russia. Uh, you have been speaking against our militia, our army. I highly advise the, you against that, to which Tevi simply says, I have some advice for you. Get off my land. This is my home, my land. Get off my land. What's interesting is that Tevi and the various stories that are told about him longs to return to the ultimate homeland, the land of Israel. And that leads us to what we're considering here this morning. Because what you and I are looking at is a, an invasion of the territory of Israel. And you're going to ask, well, what bearing does that even have upon me here in the States? Well, as you're connecting the dots of what's happening over the course of these days, and now you connect the 38th with the 39th chapters of Ezekiel, what I want to do with you now is to be able to draw three added insights that I think can be found here with the way in which this battle of Gog and Magog even relate to modern day life. And so as we continue examining here this morning the battle of Gog and Magog, out of verses 1 through 8, I first want to note with you how God's opponents here are defeated. Follow with me in the Bible as we begin to check this out. And you, son of man, prophesy. 
Now Ezekiel is living away from the homeland of Israel, yet he's not living away from the God who speaks. And so now Ezekiel, the 6th century B.C. prophet, hears God break into his own exiled setting. Say, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog. In other words, the Tsar of Russia, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And now notice what God says here in verse 2. And remember the map from last week, or go home, check out a modern-day map, and consider what's being described here. And I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north. And you and I know that when you examine modern-day maps accordingly, what is the uttermost part, of course, is the land of Russia. So you're watching what's happening now in the Ukraine and relates to Russia and vice versa. And so with that in mind, and you see him stating, I'll turn you about and drive you forward, bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north, and lead you against the mountains of Israel, God is taking the initiative. God is allowing then for this northern force that is compiled of seven nations to begin their movement towards the invasion of Israel. And then notice what verse 3 tells you. I will strike your bow from your left hand. Make your arrows drop out of your right hand. 1967, Egypt issues a postage stamp showing Nasser with a map of Israel in flames in his right hand. On May 18th, 1967, Nasser demanded the withdrawal of UN forces from the Sinai. The UN complied. And on May 22nd, Nasser announced that the Gulf of Aqaba would be closed to Israeli shipping, cutting Israel off. And the result was that Israel then, its existence was being threatened. Before the fighting started, the radio in Cairo announced, our people have been waiting 20 years for this battle. And it began. But for those that were around and those that remember, the battle lasted from June 5th to June 10th of 1967, in which Israel won the shortest war in history. Now, each and every battle then that you see is still another installment that leads forward to the ultimate battles still to come, Gog, Magog, followed by Armageddon. God is sovereign. He allows these forces to head southward towards Israel, and then in verse 4, you and I are told, you shall fall. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel. 
you and all your hordes and the peoples who are with you. I'll give you to birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. And I'll send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. In other words, God is now going to do something evangelistically as a result of this invasion. Well, we need a few pictures. Something to be able to give us a a sense, a, a perspective of what we're talking about. Something topographical. So look first of all with me at what appears on the screen. And what you're going to see now is a lay of the land. And I want you to see the mountainous regions. And then look carefully at verse 2. And again in verse 4. And see how this might get well worked out in terms of the prophetic teachings you are finding here in these verses. These are the lands that currently uh, deal with such places as Lebanon, closest to the Mediterranean, and Syria, Syria, which seems to always be involved in an invasion of Israel. But then you look very carefully, very carefully, at what the Bible has to say about the promised land that God had offered to the Israelites and Abram's experience with God and realize the significance of the fact that those settings were part and parcel of God's plan for God's people, the Jews. Look at this. What appears next on the screen is the coastlands. This is the Syrian coastland. Compare that now to what God is saying, found in verse 6 at this point. I'll send fire on Magog, and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Now you've got your visuals. You're gaining a perspective. And notice now he begins to tie together the way in which he's involved in defeating this oppositional force in verses 7 and again in verse 8. And my holy name I will make known in the midst of the people Israel, which is critically important, you see, because right now Israel outside of Jerusalem is by and large either atheistic or agnostic. They need a heavy dose of evangelism coming to the mindset and to the heart of one and all. My holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And out of this then, there's this extraordinary missionary impact where it goes on to say, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it's coming. Be brought about, declares the Lord God. It's the day of which I have spoken. And you say, well, Gary, at this point then, what kind of impact can we have? What, what can be said to minister to people such as those that need to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but might find themselves opposed unto Israel? Mr. Rosenberg Joel Rosenberg writes, My wife and I had the privilege of attending the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. 
a remarkable event with 4,000 guests from all over the U.S. and around the world. And what was most fascinating to me and most interesting was the talk of the morning given by Tony Hall, congressman from Dayton, Ohio, appointed by the President of Service, the U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Food and Agriculture Agencies based in Rome. Mr. Hall urged people of faith and to not be shy about bringing faith to the office and letting it be known, be part of what they're all about. And then he described a trip he took to an Islamic country where he was greeted by the U.S. ambassador at the airport. Get this. Congressman Hall said the unnamed ambassador from the U.S., I just want to remind you that you are now in a Muslim country. Please don't talk about religion. Or it could really set back what we're trying to accomplish here. And Hall smiled. But when they arrived at the office of the king, so I can now imagine which Muslim nation this is, he was asked by the king why he had come to the country, and uh, Mr. Hall then said, I would like to be your friend. I would like our countries to be friends. And I would like to invite you to the national prayer breakfast in the name of Jesus Christ. The U.S. ambassador went pale. But the king was excited. Slapped his knee and said, this is remarkable. You have come all this way to be my friend and to talk to me about Jesus? That's wonderful. My mother used to talk to me a lot about Jesus when I was a child. We should talk about Jesus more often. And then the king turned to the U.S. ambassador and said, and why don't you talk about Jesus? Oh, God has his ways. God has his ways of doing something rather surprising in the most unexpected settings through the unexpected people in the most unexpected ways all of which is simply to bring glory to his name. Notice what he's doing with this invasion, both internally and externally. Internally, what he's doing now is capturing the attention of the Israelites, saying, I am your God who sent Jesus to die for your sins. And what is he saying to the nations externally? I'm sovereign. Look very carefully at the one I sent into this world, a Jew who came to die for your sins. Have you put your faith and trust in him for salvation? Uh, so there's your first of the perspectives for today. Notice how God's opponents are defeated in 1 through 8. But now the second perspective here, and it's flowing now naturally out of verse 9 down through 20, and we're going to do some summarizing along the way. But notice furthermore how God's land is restored. You pick it up now with me at verse 9. Are you there? And so as you begin reading, check it out. And those who dwell in the cities of Israel, because of this invasion, will go out and make fires of the weapons and burn them, shields and bucklers 
bow and arrows, clubs and spears. They'll make fires of them for seven years. I found that that's so extraordinary. For seven years. So that they will not need to take wood out of the field or cut down any out of the forest. For they will make their fires of the weapons, and they'll seize the spoil of those who despoiled them and plunder those who plundered them, declares, declares the Lord. And so what I did was I, I began to look back over some of the wars since Israel gained statehood and asked how were these installments leading towards the major future installment, Gog and Magog, such as the War of 1948, where as soon as Israel was, had proclaimed its independence, it was attacked by Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, roughly a half million Jews in Israel, surrounded by over 40 million Arabs. And between February 24th to July 20th of 1949, several unsuccessful Arab invasions occurred until a ceasefire was administrated. Check out the Battle of 1956. October Egypt, Jordan, Syria signed an agreement placing their armies under Nasser's command. Big mistake. And then the war of 1967. I referenced it as the shortest war in history. All three confrontation states defeated. Israeli troops captured over one billion worth of Russian-supplied Armaments. Israeli army seized most of the Sinai Peninsula, Jordanian sector of Jerusalem, West Bank, Golan Heights, Gaza, the Gaza Strip, and then of course the Yom Kippur War of 1973, where Israel was attacked by combined forces of Egypt and Syria, assisted and by Iraq. Jordan and the likes, ratio of 12 to 1. Uh, but at the end of the day, Israel had seized almost 500 square miles of additional property when the UN ordered a ceasefire. They seem so extraordinarily, extraordinarily outnumbered. Napoleon said God is on the side of the heaviest artillery, but at Waterloo he was proved wrong for the 160 guns of the English overcame the 150. 250 guns of the French. Watch out when it comes to those who might be in the minority. They may very well, in fact, be in the majority. And now here is God, and God breaks in. And what I see in all of these battles from 1948 to the present, Syria is always involved. Yeah, didn't we show a picture of the coastlands? They saw, thought that they were dwelling securely. Through it all, then, what you and I see is that God is claiming the very territories that he had promised to the Jews. And so now, you look very carefully at what we've just described here, and look, and look, and look. As for you, son of man, 
as for you, look very carefully at what I am doing here with regard to the people that I love, the people of Israel. And check out this scene after verse 16. A battle has occurred, and now the fields of Israel, at the end of verse 16, a picture appears on the screen that offers us an understanding. I'll read a few verses, picture this land that appears. They will set apart men to travel through the land regularly, bury those travelers remaining on the face of the land so as to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they'll make their search. And then when these travel through the land and anyone sees a bone, then he shall set up a sign by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog. Hamanoah is the name of the city. Thus they shall cleanse the land. What God is doing at this point then is that he is securing the land, the land that he had promised to Abram. You know, there is this scene in Genesis chapter 15. It is known as, as the covenant of the pieces, where the presence of God makes its way through an animal that had been cut in two. And what he was saying is that if I go back on my promise pertaining to this land, uh, not only will the promise cease to exist, I will cease to exist. What happened to these animals would happen to me. But you see, God is eternal, therefore the promise is eternal. And so in Genesis chapter 17, what you find then is that God is reestablishing an eternal promise given to Abram and his seed pertaining to not only his descendants, but the land as well. So you pull all that together and you see that God's promise is irrevocable. Check out verse 17 onwards. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort, to all the beasts of the field, assemble, come, gather all around to the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you, a sacrificial sacrifice feast on the mountains of Israel and so on. And now what I want you to see, take that connected to what you will find in Revelation pertaining to the battle of Armageddon, the same thing again. And what God is saying, what God will do, he will cleanse his land. Thus, what you and I have to do is to take seriously the way in which God has used the promises that have been given to us and then apply them to the realities of what we are seeing in the world right now. Check this one out. Mr. Rosenberg says, I had the privilege of having lunch in California with a man named Brother Andrew. Some of us know of him. One of the most remarkable missionaries of this century, the last. Wrote a number of books, bestseller, God's Smuggler, where he brought Bibles in into communist settings. Over salad and iced tea, Andrew humbly told me about how he personally shared the gospel with Yasser Arafat, with Islamic ayatollahs, with Palestinian terrorists exiled in Lebanon, but the story that affected me most was about his unforgettable experience of sharing the gospel to 400 Hamas leaders in Gaza City. I didn't take notes, so let me just quote here from Brother Andrew's book. Quote, I cannot change the situation you face here in Gaza, 
Brother Andrew told the Hamas leaders, so opposed to the Jews. I can't solve the problems you have with your enemies, but I can offer you the one who is called the Prince of Peace. You cannot have real peace without Jesus, and you cannot experience him without forgiveness. He offers to forgive us all for our sins, but we cannot receive that forgiveness if we don't ask for it. The Bible calls this repentance and confession of sin. And if you want it, then Jesus forgives. He forgave me and made me a new person. And now I'm not afraid to die because my sins are forgiven. I have everlasting life. What makes the story all the more remarkable was that rather than lynching Brother Andrew for trying to share the gospel of Jesus with the Hamas leaders actually invited him to speak to other Muslims. Andrew, I believe you know that I teach at the Islamic University, said one. To my knowledge, we have never heard any lectures about Christianity. While you were talking, I was thinking that it would be helpful for all the students to know about real Christianity. Would you consider coming to the university? and offering a lecture about the difference between Christianity and Islam. Oh, God does surprising things in surprising ways through surprising people. You're on then to the third and final perspective that I want to share with us and offer us this morning. And so as you're looking very carefully at the way in which we're examining these verses, and we've noticed here how God's opponents are defeated, one through eight, and then how God's land is restored. And you've gone all the way from verse nine down through verse 20. Well then, thirdly, what I want you to see here and what we're examining all together is how God's glory is displayed. And so you pick it up now. Are you doing that? Verse 21, and in verse 21, God is now looking at the aftermath of, of Gog and Magog, this battle. And what does he say? And I will set my glory among the nations. And this is his purpose. He is using this as a missions moment to be able to say that through this battle and the defeat of the opponents of Israel, I will set my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, my hand that I have laid on them, and the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. In other words, he's going back and forth uh, internally and externally, inwardly in Israel, externally to the nations of the world. And then you get to the final verses. You get to example verses 28 and 29. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore, and I will not hide my face anymore from them, when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord and God. And when he pours his house, his spirit upon the house of Israel, what he's doing is he's taking that major installment that took place at Pentecost, 
when the Holy Spirit came upon the people gathered in Jerusalem and saying that was an installment, but not the final installment. The final installment is still to come when my people are regathered. The Holy Spirit descends upon them. Great numbers come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And now we're set for the final stage of history. And God pulls it all together through his installment plans that involve land, that involve people, that involve his Messiah and Jesus Christ. And so you look at that, and then you smile when you've got a Tevi saying, against our militia army, I highly advise against it, says the constable to Tevi. Tevi, I have some advice for you. Get off my land. This is still my home. My land. Get off my land. And what God is saying, I'm pulling it all together, past, present, and future. And I and I alone will receive the glory. Let's stand together. So three more perspectives added to the four of last week that help us to tie together uh, the prelude, Gog and Magog, that leads to the postlude, Battle of Armageddon. So, Father, as we look very carefully at what is occurring globally, and we see the geopolitical trends and try to understand the alliances and the treaties and the connectedness through it all, while the average person might look at the news and feel so overwhelmed, the believer has the opportunity to see God at work, God sovereignly orchestrating a plan that leads to the ultimate where people bow their knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. So Father, for those watching online now or in the days to come, for those in the prior service or this one, may we sense that you are in charge, you are in control. And in a Memorial Day weekend time period, when we consider battles fought and lives laid down, we pray that just as we consider the many that laid down their lives for our political freedom, we embrace the one who laid down his life for our eternal freedom having put faith and trust in Jesus, Lord and Savior. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.